There's a pretty nice view from Mountain Bill. I said Kathleen MacArthur to her friend Judith Wright on a bright summer's day. And I don't know about you, but my greatest fears are that someone will take all this beauty away. So let's fight. Oh, let's fight for it, I say. Where has all the country gone? Part one. A lunch hour theatre script by Kathleen MacArthur. Kathleen's love for the Australian flora and fauna deepened throughout her lifetime. Commencing from humble beginnings as a nature lover, pressing wildflowers, labelling them by their scientific names and capturing their beauty in art and illustrations. Then as an activist supporting important conservation projects by collecting signatures for petitions to save important Queensland ecosystems in Kalula and on the Great Barrier Reef. However, her greatest impact was as part of a growing collective dedicated to awakening Australia to the impact of environmental vandalism. Her efforts were tireless, writing letters to the newspapers warning of the dangers of CFCs, speaking about the precariousness of the ozone layer and promoting the biological importance of the world's seas and rainforests. It was a busy little revolution with everyone turning into an environmentalist. A lone hermit out in the wilderness might, with a bit of luck, escape from the environmentalists, arriving in their four-wheel drives, but surely he still enjoys following the path of the ant or smelling the freshness of dawn. For years, concerned citizens had been worrying about the lack of regard shown toward Australia's native wildlife. In one clear display of such complacency, Prime Minister of the day, Robert Menzies, granted permission to a society of British ornithologists to collect and haul as many Australian native birds as they could use. And despite the well-known fact that the British Museum already held a grand collection of Australian bird specimens, larger than any held in Australian museums. Besides which, Menzies had no right to do such a thing. The native fauna is the property of the state. Regardless, and despite concern for the rising public indignation, champagne corks popped in both Canberra and London in celebration. However, on the other side of the world, a different kind of conversation was occurring spurred on by Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. To set the scene, the book outlines a tale from a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to be in harmony with its surroundings. It lay in the midst of a checkerboard of prosperous farms, filled with fields of grain and hillside orchards and set on vast areas of lush green land. In autumn, oak and maple and birch trees set up a blaze of colour that fueled and flickered across a backdrop of pines. Along the roads, laurel, verbena, alder, peat ferns and wildflowers delighted the traveller. Even the roadsides were places of beauty, where countless birds came to feed on the berries and on the seed heads of the dried weeds rising above the snow. The countryside was, in fact, famous for its abundance. People travelled great distances to observe the teeming bird life, 
Others came to fish the rivers that flowed clear and cold from the hills and were filled with trout. So it had been from the days many years ago when the first settlers raised their houses, sank their wells and built their barns. Then one spring, something strange crept over the area and everything began to change. It was as though an evil spell had been cast. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens, and in the fields the cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was the shadow of death. Farmers began to speak of unexplained illnesses, inflicting their families. Several sudden and unexplained deaths, not only among the adults but also among the children, who would be stricken while they were playing and would die within hours. At the same time, a strange stillness fell across the township. Mornings which had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, doves and wrens and scores of other bird voices were quiet. Bird feeding stations in the backyards lay deserted. The few birds that remained were sickly. They trembled violently and many could not fly. Silence crept over the fields and woods across marshes and onto farms. The silent spring came. The hens brooded but no chicks hatched. Apple trees bloomed but no bees droned among the blossoms. There would be no fruit along the roadside. Fields were windblown and littered with withered vegetation. Ants were silent too. No anglers came to fish, for all the fish were gone. In the towns and almost every garden, small patches of white granular powder could be seen. Weeks earlier, that same powder had dropped like snow upon the lawns, the fields and the streets. This was no witchcraft, no evil action. The people had done it themselves. What Miss Carson did with Silent Spring, she did for the entire world. For Today by Judith Wright We were always part of a process. It has expanded. What sells over us now is a logical spread from the small horizons we made, the heave of the great corporations whose bellies are never full. What sort of takeover bid could you knock back now if the miners, the junk food firms or their processors want your land? Or worse... Leave you alone to hoe small beans in a dwindling row. Here in Australia, prominent zoologist and once Vice-Chancellor of Monash University, Jock Marshall wrote, The Great Extermination, a guide to Anglo and Australian cupidity, wickedness and waste. It was a substantial work that brought together the concerns of prominent scientists to highlight the degradation of Australian biodiversity. In his book, Jock Marshall told how, in 1825, botanist Baron Field described the New South Wales countryside as a perpetual flower garden. So impressed by the bountiful landscape, the little chap, Mr Field, wondered how on earth he himself would get on if he were left alone there and had to fend for himself among such an array of strange fauna and flora. 
I recall Sir Kenneth Clark once saying that the inhospitable fringe between sea and desert could hardly be called by such a reassuring name as the Australian countryside. At the time of European settlement, our landscape was densely littered with trees, filled with flying foxes, and in the undergrowth, countless bilbies, bandicoots, potteroos, paddy melons, and all the others could be seen. One only need to look back to 1825, when the gannetry on Cat Island in Bass Strait recorded over 9,000 pairs of gannets nesting in native shrubbery. By 1964, only 15 pairs remained, having had the young chicks taken as prized bait for hungry craypots. Was it time for Australia's own awakening? This is a U-Butte country, so quality controlled, with not a dune or forest that can't be bought or sold. Their substitute religion, sincere we hardly doubt, was primitive though blissful, we're better off without. Twas not the land they wept for, they loved not our society. They worshipped false divinities, ours is a truer piety. So join our congregation, Australia is our pigeon. Raise high the hymn to Cam and Sim, the buck's a true religion. Kathleen's dear friend and conservational colleague, David Flay, expressed the opinion that there should be more nature study taught in schools. To which Brian Clouston of Jacaranda Press, publishers of school textbooks, responded by offering to publish a free natural history magazine if those concerned would collect and organise the content. So together, David, Kathleen and poet Judith Wright got to work on their own awakening by establishing the Wildlife Preservation Society of Queensland in September 1962. Our beloved WPSQ. The 1960s was a decade of prosperity and consumerism. It was also a major turning point in public opinion. The public was being increasingly exposed to ideas of the vulnerability of natural ecosystems and the damage being caused by human development. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring warned of the dangers of using pesticides like DDT, and Jock Marshall had provided the scientific evidence to support these claims. Most importantly, Jock Marshall championed the idea that a rich ecosystem has a natural and unique biodiversity that cannot simply be reduced or measured by economic value alone. All environmentalists look beyond human benefits and act for the rights of nature to protect biodiversity and ecosystems in their whole. Perhaps it's best to start with a brief review of the prevailing attitudes towards the fauna and flora in Australia. One particularly sordid episode in Queensland's history occurred in August 1927, when the Courier-Mail published this rather disconcerting announcement. 
Today, Acting Premier and Minister for Agriculture and Stock, Forgan Smith, declared that the month of August be earmarked for the legal hunting and trapping of native bears and opossums, subject to the granting of a licence by the department. The declaration of an open season on koalas drew licence fees from no less than 10,000 registered trappers alone. It also evoked protests from environmentalists like George Barker, a member of the Committee of Advice on Native Birds, who responded through a letter to the editor. In reference to the Minister of Agriculture and Stock's announcement, I write, Though no reason can be learned about the decision, those of us who are interested in the preservation of this wonderfully interesting and harmless little animal are wondering what has transpired. As far as it can be learned, no advice on this matter has been sought from the department's biological officers or rangers, nor any university or any scientific society competent to speak on the impending extinction of this little animal. In fact, one is only to assume that the matter has been hurried and kept secret quite deliberately in anticipation of strong opposition from the public. The minister replied in the very next edition. May I remind my general public that I have acted after full consideration and in accord with the Animals and Birds Act, which sets out a degree of protection for native fauna equal to that accorded to the fauna of any other country in the world. But we must remember that the fur industry is a valuable one in Queensland, and it is worthy of note that any royalties collected therefrom will not go into general revenue but for the purpose of providing funds for the further protection of our Australian fauna. The only way our little bears can contribute to the revenue is by dying and handing over their skins. That decision was made by the Queensland Government of 1927 and became directly responsible for the massacre of nearly 600,000 koalas, all within the space of a few murderous months. Somebody told me I might live to regret it Well, there's only one way to find out Up on my shoulder there's a chip, don't forget it Maybe that's what this whole thing's about And every day is a chance to bring this back From the brink if we can hold it steady is over we'll be sleeping like koalas in the daytime honey daytime with the scent and the sound of the forest in our heart nature's playtime honey playtime whoa podcast series was produced by the Sunshine Coast Council Heritage Library with the support of a strategic priority grant from the State Library of Queensland. This series was produced in 2022 and may not be reproduced for any commercial or non-commercial interest.